All right, well, welcome back to uh, Boundless. I won't regurgitate probably any of the opening things because I'm sure Rich shared them all. But uh, glad, glad to be back uh, here with you guys and um, kicking off our study, as you can see on the screen, uh, our study of singleness. Is this somebody's? No? Maybe? It's a journal? If it is, it'll be up here. People are too afraid to, uh, to claim it. All right. Excited to kick off our singleness series. Um, been wanting to teach a series on this topic for a long time. Uh, if you're new here, we take our Sunday morning. Uh, this is for college and career, so it's not just for college students. It's also for the working folk, the single folk uh, that are here. And, um, and so we take these Sunday mornings as a chance to teach topically about certain things uh, to equip you in the particular stage of life that you're in, some of the things you face and to try to help you um, uh, be equipped just to, like we said, to live maximally in some of, these, some of these areas. And so this topic is one I've wanted to teach for a while, and it's the topic of singleness. And uh, I was reflecting, and I couldn't believe that I hadn't actually done a series on this in my entire seven or however many years I've been here, because this seems like, a, a, like a, the largest oversight in the universe for the college and career pastor. Um, but here we are. And uh, I think this series is obviously relevant to most of you. Yes? Okay, okay. Thought so? Unless you all got married last night. Um, uh, It's super important for you to have a handle on uh, this topic of singleness and how God's working in you and plans to work in you through this uh, life scenario that you're in. Uh, it's important to kind of know what, what is it that this single season is all about? What should I be focusing on? What are some of its pitfalls and dangers? So, Lord willing, we're going to look into all of that um, over the next few weeks. And uh, this series is important for uh, the married folks in here, too. I know we've got a lot of boundless leaders. I'm married. Um, so certain folks are, are, are engaged, and they're getting married, and they're thinking, okay, well, this might not be as much for me. Well, yes, it is. Because, uh, number one, you are going to be giving counsel to lots of single folks for the rest of your life, okay? So it's important that you understand uh, a bit about a bit more about this, this season. And then number two, uh, odds are, it's kind of morbid, but you're going to be single again uh, at the end of your life. One of you will be, at least. So, just, yeah, just saying facts here, you know. We don't like to think about it. But uh, it's important. Stop laughing. (laughs) That was supposed to be funny. Have a wife. And I pray I die before she does. And I think she's praying the opposite. So so anyway, seriously, stop laughing. This is a serious topic. And it's important because lots of times, even in shepherding, we see uh, a spouse die. And um, it's just, it becomes very difficult, really. What, what does the other spouse do? Um, how do they function in the church and in the world? So, uh, very important that we kind of get, get our minds around this topic, whether we're single or married. And just culturally speaking, uh, this topic is as important as ever. Uh, there are more singles today uh, in America than there have ever been in the history of our nation. Um, people are getting married, but they're getting married later. Uh, it's less often, and so, you know, we could cite lots of reasons for this, you know, devaluation of marriage over the years, um, 
more and more people are in relationships, but they're not marrying. So there's a, there's a the social stigma is removed from that, culturally speaking. So uh, they're delaying, you know, they're delaying marriage, rising confusion around the gender, um, escalation of homosexuality in the culture. I mean, we could, the list could go on for maybe why this is the case, why there's more singles. But all of this, we're naive to think that, all, that, that none of that has an impact on uh, younger Christians as they're growing up in the world around them. So, um, important that we think through the topic for those reasons. But probably most of all is when I interact with people, there's just a lot of confusion, a lot of questions around this topic, right? When you take a, a, a cursory glance at Scripture, where we're going to go this morning, is you're, you're going to see that on first glance, it appears that you have competing data about singleness and marriage. Do you know what I'm talking about? On the one hand, it seems that singleness is not good, right? It's not a good thing. It wasn't good for the man to be alone. But on the other hand, Paul seems to say the exact opposite. So look, look with me at this just as we're, as we're getting going on some of this data here. It's clear that as we read our Bibles, singleness starts out as something that is not good. Okay? After the Lord creates Adam, listen to what he says here. Whoa, there we go. Genesis 2.18 He says it is not good that the man should be alone. Not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So right out of the gate, right out of the beginning, Adam was alone and he was single, and single Adam was not good. He needed a wife, and the Lord made him a wife. All the single guys that want to be married, say amen. All right, that's my only joke there, okay? I'm going to stop that. Playing into the confusion here. All right. Years later, Solomon, King Solomon, echoed this same sentiment from Genesis 2. Listen to what he says. He's Proverbs 18. Sorry, I'm getting used to the new clicker. He says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. He finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. For the normal Israelite in Solomon's kingdom, if he found a wife, he found literally, it's just, if you find a wife, you find good, right? It was a symbol of God's favor, of his blessing. And that meant that being single felt more like a curse. If you weren't married and you didn't have kids, it was like your name, your legacy would be cut off from the people of Israel. And so the message is clear, at least at this point, singleness is not good in the beginning of our Bibles. But then toward the back end of our Bibles, we see something else, something that sounds almost exactly the opposite. Here we have a single Apostle Paul saying this to all the single people in Corinth. Okay? To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Time out, right? I mean, let's see, how provocative is that? It's almost the exact opposite, right? It is not good that the man be alone. It is good, actually, that they remain single as I am. Then a few verses later, in this same chapter in 1 Corinthians, he says this. He says, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Like, whoa, did he really say that? He did. Go check it out later. It's afternoon. 
You're thinking, that's not what Pastor Clay told us in the dating series. Is he competing with Paul here? Won't my life be worse without a spouse? Well, apparently not, because Paul says that he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Getting interesting. Think about this. Even to the widows who had lost their husbands, he says in verse 40 of this same chapter that Paul thinks they will be happier if they do not remarry. Happier if they don't remarry. He says, in my judgment, she, that's the widow, is happier if she remains as she is. That is, single and without a husband. So which is it? Right? Is it not good to be single? Or is it good to be single? Well, enter the confusion. If we're not careful, the confusion we're not really sure, or we maximize one text over the other text, that confusion leads to a lot of problems. Okay? So on the one hand, people might be tempted to minimize singleness by appealing to creation. The command to be fruitful and multiply. You've probably heard it from a well-meaning ant. You know what I'm talking about? They probably mean well, but when you talk to them, it seems that they're concerned about one thing and one thing only, and that's getting you married. Sometimes they say things that, that, that are unhelpful. Things like, you know, you really start growing once you get married and have kids. How many of you heard that? As though the Lord is not growing you very much right now when you're single. As though His hand is shortened to accomplish your maturation. Or sometimes we might subtly think that something's wrong if somebody's not getting married. Sometimes that might be the case. Very often it is in our culture. But not always. Point being is that if we don't understand what this other column is saying, the second column here of Paul's words, if we don't understand Paul's statements about the single state, we will be tempted to minimize the single state. But on the other hand, sometimes people think Paul's, Paul's saying singleness is like the superior state, right? The super Christian state. And you only get married if you're full of lust. So what ends up happening is an elitist mentality creeps into those who are pursuing singleness. You know, we are making unique sacrifices for the kingdom. And the church just, they just don't understand us, you know. We're most like Jesus. He was single. And if they're not careful, pride can grow unchecked in their hearts. And I think that would be the opposite of what Paul would intend. But then others just might be terrified that they have this gift, right? This gift of singleness. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I pray I don't have this, right? Because they really want to get married. They view God's gracious gift as a curse, as a lifetime of unhappiness, which actually goes against what Paul says here. But let me give give you some good news. If that's how you feel, then you probably don't have the gift of singleness, okay? So just breathe easy uh, on that one. Um, However, though, it's easy to think that if I just get married, I just have kids, my problems are going to go away, I will be happy. We tend to idolize marriage and think our problems will just go away if we can just get married and have kids. So there's lots of pitfalls. We're going to talk about some of those in weeks to come. But, but for now, we're just asking this question, which is it? Is it good or is it not good? I'm talking about singleness. Is it a blessing or a curse? And if, it's a, if it is a blessing now, how did it become that? 
How did it change? How did it transform? How did it go from something not good to now preferred? And Paul says, a happier state, according to the apostle. Well, that is a great question. It's a complex question, and it's one we're going to try to answer this morning as we get started in our series on singleness. And the answer depends on where we're at in the Bible's storyline. Bible's a story, okay? It's not just a collect. It's, it, it's, a, it's an anthology of texts, yes, but the, the backbone of this book is a storyline from Genesis and the creation of man to what we saw in just a few minutes ago in Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth. So the answer to this question of whether it's good or not depends on where we're at in the Bible storyline. Or we could say it depends on where God is at in the fulfillment of his mission. You tracking with me? It depends on where God is at in the fulfillment of his mission. That's because, as we're going to see today, as the mission develops from the Old Testament to the New Testament, as it does, it transforms the significance of singleness. That's the thesis okay, of what's going to be a complicated message. So if you thought, it's like I was thinking the whole time in Revelation, I was like, oh man, it's a flyover of Revelation, and now there's going to be a flyover of the whole Bible. So it's like the one-two punch today. So, but here's the deal. As the mission of God develops from the Old Testament to the New, it transforms the significance of singleness. So at the beginning, at the very start of the mission, marriage and procreation were essential to the mission. Right? Be fruitful and multiply. And that makes sense. That makes, that makes singleness, I should say, a bad thing, a hindrance to the mission. If you're single, you can't have kids, you can't be fruitful and multiply and thus fulfill the mission. But now, at a later point in God's mission, marriage and procreation are eclipsed by something better. That's what we're going to see today as by spiritual offspring. And that means that marriage is not essential to the mission anymore like it was in Genesis 1 and 2. You don't have to be married, in other words, to be fruitful and multiply disciples. Jesus was not married, and neither was Paul. And in fact, in certain scenarios, being single might make you more fruitful in disciple-making. So to put it simply, the shift from the Old Testament to the New transforms the significance of singleness. Singleness becomes an asset to the mission rather than a hindrance to it in the New Covenant. So this morning, I want to develop this out for you a little more carefully to show you really when and how singleness was transformed. So if you want a title for the message, it's the transformation of singleness. How singleness went from a sad and pitiable state that everybody feared to one that Paul prioritizes as essential for the mission. And so I want to spend the rest of our time this morning unpacking at a very high level God's mission in its various stages, kind of with an eye toward this theme of singleness, okay? And at each stage, I want us to kind of see, okay, where where are we at on this topic of singleness? Has it changed? Has it shifted? And where does it shift? Where do I go in the Bible to see this shift take place? So we're going to look at the mission, 
and really the shift that takes place, the transformation of singleness as that mission develops. All right, we got to start where we, we got to always start here, which is the mission. Whoa, come on. The mission at creation. The mission at creation. So like we saw back in Genesis 2, at the inception of God's mission, singleness is not good. That's because God's mission at creation involved Adam and Eve taking dominion of this entire planet. If you want to think about the mission as like a seed that's going to grow into a flower, here's the seed form of the mission. Adam and Eve are to take dominion of the the planet, the whole planet, and they couldn't do it alone. They needed kids. They needed kids who, who bore God's righteous image, like them. They needed those kids to grow up, to fill the earth, and to faithfully subdue it to the glory of God. That's God's mission in seed form, that a righteous Adam have righteous kids who could reign righteously on the earth. And that is dominion. And we're going to see that come back up again in the Millennial Series. So, put a pin there. As it is, let's look at at what it says here in Genesis 1, 26-28. Genesis 1, 26-28. I'm going to get there in my Bible because I can't. The text is pretty small. Feel free to turn there or follow along on the screen here. Genesis chapter 1, we'll pick it up in verse 26, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And here it is. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So that's kind of the... God's kind of talking here. He says, Let us make man in our image. So we've got image and likeness. It's kind of what we're stamped with. And then we have a task to take dominion. So, then he recounts it, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, okay, be fruitful. Interesting. Multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion. There's our key word. Over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, all I'm trying to draw out here is that Adam and Eve are given the task of having dominion and they need children to do it. They need to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth so they can subdue it and have that, have that dominion. And my point is that as God's mission at creation is established, it involves physical offspring. You see that? This is not rocket science. Okay, Physical offspring... So being alone and being single, that is not good at this point in the mission, this point in the story. But before Adam ever had kids, he didn't pass even his first initial dominion test, we could say. Instead of subduing the snake, part of God's creatures that he was supposed to rule over, instead of subduing him, the snake took dominion of him and brought sin and death into the world. So we need to ask, how does the mission fare after the fall? How does the mission fare after the fall? Is there still a need for physical offspring? And the answer is yes. Even though they failed, God did not take back his mission. We see there's still a need for physical offspring. 
But it won't be easy. In fact, it will be nigh impossible. It won't be impossible, but it's, just, it's, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult. Their sin would make the dominion mission very difficult. Eve's going to struggle to bear children. There's going to be a lot of pain. The earth's going to fight back too as Adam tries to subdue it. And most dangerous of all, the snake is going to have a foothold in their children, in their offspring. They would be his offspring because he would control them. And you think Cain, who would soon murder his brother. But apparently not all the offspring. In fact, the promise is that although the snake would make war against the offspring, her true children would come out victorious. She would have an offspring that would bruise his head, implying a fatal blow, a reversal of all that went wrong. Look in Genesis chapter 3. Pick it up in 15. It says, And I will put, this is the Lord speaking to the snake, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So here we hear of two offsprings. One of the snake, and one of the woman. As the narrative develops, it's clear that that he's not talking about baby snakes. People have actually said that, okay? So, that's not what he's talking about. Both lines are going to physically come from Eve. But one is viewed as the offspring of the serpent, we might say, because it's clear that sin has dominion over them. Cain starts that line, and ultimately it extends to all the idolatrous Gentile nations in the Old Testament. But there's another line, another line of offspring coming from Eve, that we could call the offspring of promise. The offspring of promise, we might say, meaning... God's promise to restore creation. To deal with the snake and overcome him. It won't come without cost. There will be, the snake will bruise his heel. And this offspring, this line of promise, tracks to Abel, who's killed, then to Seth as his replacement, then to Noah and Abraham, and eventually the entire nation of Israel and David, all those folks that God makes covenants with. And it's clear that this line, this physical offspring, is still of crucial importance in God's mission, even after the fall. So the point here for us is that coming out of the fall, physical offspring, the offspring of Eve, are still absolutely necessary for God's mission and the reversal of the curse, bringing blessing back to God's creation. Which means that singleness is still good or not good? Not good, okay? Single is still not good. So don't, we haven't lost the singleness theme. Still not good, okay? But as the mission moves on, it continues to develop and grow, and we get more and more clarity as God makes more and more covenants with the people in this second line, this line of promise. So we'll, we'll stay at a high level, but let's continue to trace this through the Old Testament. Mission through the Old Testament. And as we do, what we'll see is that the physical offspring remain absolutely important to God's mission. I'm going to cherry pick here. Let's take Abraham for an example. When God comes and makes a covenant with him, he keeps building on some of these promises, but he promises two things that are important for us to point out right here. 
He promises to make him into a great nation. It means a lot of kids, a lot of offspring. And number two, to either curse or bless the families of the earth through him and through his family. So this indicates that God's mission of dominion is starting to narrow down to Abraham and his family. He will multiply this family and use them either to bring his blessing back to the repenting Gentile nations or his curse to those that refuse. But he's still working through physical offspring. So, at that point, when God comes to Abraham, singleness is still not good in terms of the mission. Well, soon, Abraham's family is actually multiplied into the nation of Israel. And God makes a covenant with them, too. Again, building on all these things. And he specifies that if this nation is faithful, they will be multiplied even further, and and they will bless the world. But if they aren't, they're not faithful, then God's going to decimate them and exile them, ultimately. Reduce their children, send them into exile. Throughout their history, they went through several cycles where God multiplied them, but they would quickly forget about their Lord, and it became clear very quickly that if the nation was going to be God's faithful offspring, they're going to be His faithful children, they needed leadership. They needed someone to represent them. And so God appointed kings for them as their representatives. And He made another covenant with David. Now on down the line. And He continued to narrow down this dominion mandate, not just to Israel, but to David and his family. Now, he says, if the king is faithful, the king would represent the nation, and ultimately the nation would succeed. And for a while, they did under David and then under Solomon in Solomon's reign. But even their reigns, even as, as, as wonderful as David was and as helpful as Solomon was, their reigns were far from perfect, and we know that all too well. Even they fell, and eventually the kingship failed, and Israel became worse than the Gentile nations around her, the Old Testament says. And so, God sent the nation into exile as His judgment for being unfaithful offspring. Isaiah's words, an offspring of evildoers. Now, it was an exile when things became crystal clear that more physical offspring are not just going to cut it them to be faithful. They needed something fundamentally different to happen to them. They needed to become a different kind of offspring. They needed new hearts and inner renewal, God's own spirit, if they were ever going to have any hope of being faithful. They needed a new David, a perfect David who could create a faithful offspring who would never go astray, who would always live in the land and eternally who would finally and fully reverse that curse. And that's what everything pointed to from Genesis 3 to now. And that's exactly what God promised through the prophets, and especially through the prophet Isaiah. And it's here in some, in some hints that Isaiah gives us that the mission will start to bloom, so to speak. Seed form, Genesis, it's now hints that it's going to start to bloom in Isaiah. No more stops and starts with an unfaithful offspring. The mission of God will take off as the faithful son, the faithful offspring comes, and as he creates a faithful offspring once and for all, and as we'll see in an unanticipated way. So we're going to look at this, maybe, 
Look at the mission in Isaiah. And what Isaiah says. Now here it's clear that Israel has failed in her role as God's offspring. That's how the, that's how the prophecy starts. Chapter 1. Israel's failed. She's an offspring of evildoers. Children I've reared and they've been unfaithful, he says. And that's why she's currently exiled. Or at least will go into exile through the message of Isaiah. But that doesn't mean that God is finished with her. The message of Isaiah is that he will send a Messiah, his true offspring, his faithful son, and that this offspring will stand in the place of Israel, representing her, and he will restore the remnant of Israel to himself. This faithful offspring creates other faithful offspring through his death and resurrection. And for this remnant of Israel, this decimated remnant will suddenly and unexpectedly be given more children. Way more children than Israel had ever had in her history. And it will come quickly. It will come without labor pains in a totally unanticipated way. And this offspring, Isaiah says, will be faithful and will inherit the new heavens and new earth. There it is in a nutshell. And it's here in Isaiah's prophecy that things begin to shift regarding singleness. The Lord bears these children, not Israel herself. They're qualitatively different. They're a different kind of offspring. And even those unable to have children, Isaiah says, can participate in it. Like eunuchs. So, I know I just said a lot in my overview, and you're like, I can't write all this down. So let's look at a few of these texts. First, Isaiah predicts that a childless Messiah will see his righteous offspring. As you finish writing that down, turn to Isaiah 53. I'm zooming in here because I think this is, this is really where you see the shift taking place. And it starts happening in the Old Testament itself. Or at least it's predicted. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 8, he says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. He's talking about the Messiah and his death. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, listen to this language, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. Now, I could hear your pages of your Bible still turning as I was reading that. Do you track with me in some of the things that Isaiah said there? I want you to notice a few very interesting things, okay? Notice in verse 8, this Messiah is described as cut off from the land of the living, or cut off out of the land of the living. Do you see that? Who considered that he was cut off, middle of verse, that he was cut off out of the land of the living? Now, he's certainly referring to his death with this phrase, but I think there's more here. In the Old Testament, when you're cut off like this, it's often a way of describing someone who has died without any children. 
If you want to cross-reference, you can write down Jeremiah eleven nineteen. Jeremiah eleven nineteen. Well, you kind of see that with more clarity there. But this is no ordinary death, okay? So the point here is to be cut off from the land of the living means your, your name doesn't continue because you don't have any offspring. You don't have any children. So you're cut off from, from the land in this way. Your legacy, you don't leave a legacy. But the death that's happening here is not an ordinary death. It's a substitutionary death. It's one that provides an offering for sin and it makes many righteous. And it's in this context that in verse 10, that Isaiah says the Messiah will see his offspring. Now, time out. I thought he was cut off in the land of the living without any children. How is he seeing his offspring? Well, what this text implies is that the offspring of the Messiah is one he creates by his death in their place. The death of the Messiah will create a righteous offspring. He will make many to be accounted righteous, he says in this very passage. He's going to do something that's never been done before in Israel's history. This transcends mere physical offspring, and it's a qualitatively new kind of offspring. Now, that's incredible, but that's not all that's happening here in Isaiah. He's just getting started with this theme. Notice in the very next chapter that Isaiah predicts that a barren Israel would receive many offspring in an unanticipated way. A barren Israel is predicted to receive many children, many offspring, in this like wildly unanticipated way. So picking up, I mean, just remember the context. He just talked about this Messiah who's going to come and die and then without kids, but he's going to see his offspring. And now listen to, listen to the language of chapter 54. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen uh, strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will will possess the nations and people and will people the desolate cities. Now this is an incredible passage. But what in the world is he talking about here? <laughs> Who is this barren woman? That's a good first question, right? Who is this barren woman? And well, it helps to know that the barren woman is an image that Isaiah uses for Israel in exile. Okay? Want another cross-reference on that? Isaiah 49, 21. It's an image that Isaiah uses for Israel in exile. She's like a barren woman. She doesn't have any children. When the Lord sent Israel into exile, he took away her children. He made her barren. So he's telling barren Israel, who has been decimated by this exile, to sing. Why? Because she's going to have kids. She has lots of kids, actually. More kids, in fact, than she ever had when she was married. Meaning, before she went into exile. Isaiah is saying that this decimated nation is going to have so many offspring, so much offspring, she's going to have to enlarge the borders of the land. That's incredible in itself. But notice also that the birth itself is unconventional. 
Israel didn't actually bear these children herself. She didn't bear them in a physical way, he says in verse 1. She's not even been in labor. These, these offspring are not just any children. They are the Messiah's offspring, like we just saw. They're fathered by God himself. Look down in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. Why? For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. Lord's the husband. And the children born to her will be fathered by him. What's the point? She won't be a widow anymore because God's going to betroth her and will cause her to have spiritual children by virtue of the Messiah's death. Now, there's lots of other passages like this in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, 19 through 23. Isaiah 66, 7 through 9. But for the sake of time, here's the only point I'm trying to make. Isaiah's envisioning a shift here. He's envisioning an escalation in the kind of offspring promised. It will be an offspring created by the Messiah's death and born to Israel in an unconventional way. Already in the Old Testament, the expectation for offspring is developing into a spiritual kind of offspring. It's escalating into a spiritual offspring. A new birth, we might say. It's starting to sound like First Peter, isn't it? That's going to happen. So, not only does Isaiah predict that the offspring will be transformed, but he also says something else that's super interesting, that a, a childless eunuch will be included in the mission. They can participate in the mission. Flip over a few pages on down the line to chapter 56, verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And, here it is, let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house. What? Eunuchs can't go in the house of the Lord. They're forbidden. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and... A name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So much to say here. Uh, but for background, a eunuch is somebody who had been castrated. And they served in the, ro- the royal courts of the king. Point being, they couldn't have kids. We'll talk more about eunuchs next week because one of the key texts in the New Testament has to do with what Jesus says about them. Uh, and that has a lot of implications for singleness. But for now, they have no hope of having physical sons or daughters, and that means they have no hope of carrying on their ancestral name. They are a dry tree, he says, which means they don't have any ability to reproduce. And not only that, but under the Old Covenant, they couldn't worship in the temple because of their physical deformity. They couldn't participate in the mission. But notice here what is being said. In this new day, when Messiah is creating a different kind of offspring, he tells the eunuch not to say that he is a dry tree. Don't say that. The eunuch will have a name better than sons and daughters. What does that mean? An everlasting name, he says, that shall not be cut off. He's saying that he will give him something better than physical sons and daughters, 
a lasting and eternal legacy with the implication that he will have spiritual offspring too. He won't be a dry tree because he will be able to reproduce in the new age. He will be able to have spiritual children. And finally, last text in Isaiah, this kind of offspring produced by the Messiah, these renewed offspring will live forever like the Messiah himself, and they will inherit the new creation. So we could say the renewed offspring will inherit the new creation. I'm just going to let you write that down because I'm, I'm trying to end on time here. But it just it further emphasizes the, the qualitative difference of this kind of offspring. They're going to live forever. Never to die again. And so if, I, if I've lost you at this point and you're thinking like, where are we at in singleness? Okay, tune back in right now. Okay? Let's dial it back. The only point I'm trying to make is that it's right here in Isaiah that we see the flower budding. It's not to, it's not to full, full bloom yet, but the bud is here. The mission of God is developing. The physical offspring, i.e. the Davidic king, the physical offspring, the king, will create a new kind of offspring, a righteous offspring, through his death. They will be born in a different kind of way. They will inherit the new earth. And even childless people, the people that formerly could not participate in the mission, like a eunuch, they will be able to participate. And that's where Isaiah predicts this mission is going to go. And now we're starting to see how singleness will be transformed when the Messiah comes. Are you tracking with me? All right, let's move along. And as we move into the New Testament, this is exactly where things go. Try to be brief here. Whoa, there we go. Look at mission in the New Testament. And for starters, Jesus of Nazareth is this promised offspring. He is the promised offspring. And you're like, well, where does it say that? Well, the very first verse in the New Testament. It's a big theme. Okay? Matthew 1.1. He wants to make sure that we realize that Jesus is both the son of David, and not just of David, but further back, the son of Abraham. That's the line that we're talking about, the line of promise. And the Gospel of Luke takes us even further back, before Abraham, all the way back to Adam, who is the son of God, he says, in Luke 4.38. So their point is clear. Jesus is the offspring of promise, the one promised to Eve who would conquer Satan and reverse the curse. And conquer he does. Immediately after this, Luke tells us that he's the son of Adam, and then he says he goes into the wilderness, and he's faithful when Satan tempts him. He passes the first test. The gospel finishes then with Jesus faithful in another garden. Praying, submitting his will to the fathers. And Satan throws his worst at him and he triumphs through death. So from beginning to end, Jesus is the faithful offspring who didn't love his life unto death and he succeeds where Adam failed. And speaking of singleness, he was that childless Messiah that Isaiah predicted as well. He was cut off from the land of the living without ever marrying or bearing children physically, which would have been a horrendous thing under the old covenant. His name would be cut off because he has no offspring. But, that's not what happens, is it? He raises from the dead, and guess what he does? He sees his offspring. Jesus starts creating his offspring as his word spreads through his disciples. 
He appears to his disciples. He opens their eyes and hearts to understand what the scriptures predicted. He starts creating his offspring as they understand and entrust themselves to him for the forgiveness of their sins. And it does not stop with the twelve. In Acts, thousands of Jews at Pentecost are converted, and they become part of the renewed offspring of the Messiah. And this birth wasn't a physical birth. It was a spiritual birth, the new birth that Jesus predicted. The Jews were finally being fruitful and multiplying as they were coming alive to God for the very first time. And that's exactly how the book of Acts presents this. With those very same verbs of Genesis 1 Look at this. Talking about those Jews that believed in Jesus in Jerusalem. And the Word of God, listen to this, continued to increase, there it is, and the number of the disciples multiplied. These are the fruitful and multiplication ideas that were used in the, the Old Testament. They continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What's he saying? As these Jews believed, they're being fruitful and multiplying. Okay? Again, Acts 9. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, so not just in Jerusalem, but in phase two of this mission, Judea and Samaria, they had peace, were being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, another, the same key verb, it multiplied. So that's great of the Jews, that's great of the nation, but this promise of increased offspring isn't limited to just the converted Jews. In Acts, we clearly see this promise expand out to include everyone else, even the Gentiles. And as more and more Gentiles are converted, Luke uses the same language in chapter 12. He's saying the word of God increased and multiplied. And in the context here, it's in the context of the Gentiles. Again, in chapter 19, we see this same verb repeated again. Later, after Paul's ministry is among the Ephesians, these Gentiles, Luke writes, so the word of the Lord continued to increase, there it is, and prevail mightily. But Acts isn't the only place that talks like this. Over in Colossians 1, Paul uses the same language, the same language taken from Genesis 1, when he talks about how the gospel is spreading through the whole world. He says, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. Hear the language? As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. And not only does he use the same language, but here he tells us how we become part of this offspring, by hearing and understanding the grace of God in truth. So how do you become part of the offspring? It's not by physical birth but by hearing with faith. By believing in Jesus, we could say. People become His offspring through faith. So now, right now, the mission is this. Christ is creating His offspring as more and more people believe in Him. He's renewing us into His image, the very image of God, and one day that full number will be complete at the end of this age. More on that in the, in the Millennial Series. But for now, let's just get back to where we started at the, at the very beginning of this lesson. Okay? Can you even remember where we started at this point? 
We were asking the question whether or not singleness was a good thing or a bad thing in light of what seemed to be the competing data in the, in the Bible. But we've seen the answer depends on where we're at in God's mission. At the start of it, singleness was not good because it couldn't fulfill the mission to be fruitful and multiply with physical descendants. The mission required marriage and family. So then it was not good, and it remained that way throughout most of the Old Testament. But, again, if we think of that mission like a flower, it began to grow significantly through the Old Testament, and it started budding in the prophet Isaiah. Then it opened to full bloom in the New Testament. Now, with the coming of Christ, the true offspring, he's the true offspring, physical offspring, with the coming of Jesus, we become his renewed spiritual offspring by believing in him. Marriage and family, then, is not required anymore for this kind of mission. You see that? We're being fruitful as we multiply disciples. Now, in the following weeks, we're going to say a lot more about this topic. And I'm sure you've got a lot of questions, right? There's a lot more we have to nuance here. Are marriage and family, is that irrelevant now that Christ has come? No. See why that's not irrelevant. Is singleness the preferred way or even the most normal way to live now that we're in the church? Again, the answer is going to be no. What is the gift of singleness? How does that come to bear? How, what, what if I'm single now but I don't want to be? What's it, what advice do you have for me? All that's coming. And next time, though, in the next message, we're going to look at some specific passages in the New Testament, and we're going to try to answer some of those questions. We're going to see that although singleness is often very helpful for Christ's mission, it's definitely not for everybody. Okay? Definitely not for everybody. Meaning that most will probably still want to get married, and they should. Because we're living in the overlap of the ages. The old and the new coexist together. Singleness points to the new, marriage reflects the old, and we live in the overlap of the ages. And then in weeks to come, we're going to look at some of the pitfalls of the single life. After we've talked about the gift and we've kind of sorted out all that, all that data, we're going to look at some of the pitfalls of the single life, and then finally how to maximize that life, whether you are, whether you're gifted for it, whether you're not. We'll give you some considerations on, on that. All right? So again, today, just trying to situate you within the Bible to show you how singleness is transformed between from the Old Testament to the New, and it will give us a good foundation for the weeks to come. Amen? All right. Well, I'm out of time. You're dismissed. Um, Happy Lord's Day.